All right, so there's a reason why we work through books of the Bible verse by verse, word by word, section by section, because, I mean, who would want to go through this kind of passage? Remember, if you were here last week, I told you to enjoy last week, because now he's going to start dealing with some real nitty-gritty hard stuff uh, that the church is dealing with, and it's just the tip of the iceberg, and he starts off with the bang with sexual immorality, and so... We're going to wrestle with this, and there's a reason that Paul has, has it in there. And so as God's people, for us to be able to sit underneath this. So this, 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 this message, this passage is for believers, for those who proclaim to be Christians, those who have uh, been saved by the grace of God and the grace of God only, and giving Him the glory and striving to live for Him striving to be the church that he has called us to be. So that, that's who this passage is written to. So if you're an unbeliever, or if you're offended because you're saying people outside the church are going to be offended by this, it's not meant for them. In fact, he addresses that, which we'll get to. He addresses those outside the church. He's spoken, focusing specifically on believers within the church. So if you're a believer this morning, this is for us. It's for us to learn by, for us to gather an understanding of of who God is and who we are to be as His people. You see, God is not an idol God. We don't worship a God who's sitting in His chair and relaxing and just waiting to see what's going to happen in His world. He's actively moving and working in the lives of His people. He's changing hearts from loving sin to loving Him, changing lives devoted to self to lives shaped by the cross of Christ. Jesus Christ willingly sacrificed himself upon the cross. Or as we just sang, he filled a fountain with his own blood. That's really graphic, but it's meant to be graphic because the blood of Christ covers us completely as his people. He willingly went to the cross. He shed his blood willingly to die the death that we deserved for our rebellion against God. And he did it for the glory of God and for the salvation of his people. And so as a church, as a local assembly of those who have put their faith and trust in Christ as their Savior, their treasure, and their Lord, lives need are to be changed. Lives are being changed. A life that is different from the rebellious life that they used to live before they were saved by God. That's, that's the Corinthians. He's saying, you are saved. He starts the letter out with saying, you are, you are sanctified. You are saints. You are people of God. But your lives should reflect that. But it seems that the, in the church in Corinth, they've kind of slipped in this area. They forgot that as the people of God, they are to be devoted to the will and desires of God, not themselves and not the world around them. Now, there are a lot of issues happening in the church when Paul writes this letter. And so he begins with a very easy topic of sexual immorality. Anybody wants to know what that is? Kids, congratulations, parents. Now you have a conversation at lunch today. He gives one example of it. See, it's not that the church is acting like the world in sexual immorality, but that they are acting in a way that even the unbelieving world rejects. And the church is proud of it. They're arrogant. They hold themselves high. You see, a man in the church was having sexual relations with his father's wife. Now, as my Bible says, 
the man's father may have died or the man's father may have died or the woman may have been a stepmother either one is bad it's a bad situation it is not good the man's actions are sinful now an explicit in all of Paul's writings in the new testament is his unwavering commitment to God's standard of holiness and faithfulness and so the question arises well then what does God have to say about this specific incident. And he does. Strangely enough, God says something about this. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 8, God tells Israel, he says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. And then later in the same chapter, he lays out the consequences of that sexual immorality and just sexual immorality in general. For everyone who does for anyone who does any of these abominations, these, this sexual immorality, the persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. The arrogance and the pride of the Corinthian church in this particular situation reveals that they're forsaking the desire and the command of God. But instead of grieving over such sin, they're celebrating it. They are prideful of this man's willful disobedience of God. And so, what does Paul suggest that they do? They should follow God's words in Leviticus and remove him from their assembling with or with, with assembling with or having any relationship with anyone in the church. In other words, the man should be excommunicated from the church. And we're going to walk through this step by step because there is a reason why such a drastic step is being taken or should be taken by a church. Now, this is, this is hard. This is difficult because this isn't what we want to hear. We like talking about grace and love, and that's all there, but there's also discipline and there's also faithfulness. Who does the church think that they are to do such a thing? Why? Where does the power for them or the authority for them come to take such an action, to kick this man out of the church? I mean, how dare you? Well, the church does not receive its authority and power in a vacuum or because of its own merits or because of its own sinlessness and perfection. The church is made up of servants who serve one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And any authority that the church holds has been given to it and is fulfilled by the power of their master. So in the case of Paul, his authority individually comes from his calling as an apostle. None of us are apostles on the same authority as Paul. Okay, So he's saying, what authority does the church have? By the power of Christ, your master, you know, the one who saved you and the one who created you. He, by his authority, but then Paul also adds his authority as a called apostle from Jesus Christ. This is why he says, for though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. Though he's not with them physically, his teachings to them are still true. And they're still applicable. It's not like they cease to exist once, once he left the church physically. Paul has already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's already gave teaching about what should happen to this man. And so by Paul's authority and teaching, the church should remove him. 
by the power of Christ, not their own power. It has to be done by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember in chapter 4, verse 20, Paul says, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. It's by the reign and rule of Christ, by his power and authority as king, in which the church has any right to remove this man from their assembly. Now, such a decision is not made by a a pastor. It's not made by an influential member. That happens way too often within churches. It's not made by political decision or emotionally charged decisions. It is made by the church as a whole. Verse 3, when he says, "When, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, the church is to be united as one in removing this man from their church family. Or to put it in Paul's blunt words, to deliver this man to Satan. This means to hand this man over to the desires of his flesh, his sinful cravings. This is how you want to live? Go live it. Now there's, there's in between the lines here, there's, there's an understanding that they've tried to correct him and he is being unrepentant. That's in other teachings of, of Paul. So there's no, there's no immediate repentance of this man. And so because of that, he must be removed from their midst. Not in order to be mean or cruel, not to shame or humiliate, but to destroy this man's fleshly desires so that he would repent and be saved in the day of Christ's second coming. This is very similar. If you know the story of the prodigal son, he takes his inheritance and he just wastes it and goes out and lives, lives a sexually immoral life. And in the end, it becomes sand in his mouth. It becomes worthless. Everything that was beautiful and wonderful and exciting just became nothing to him. That's the goal. If you will not listen to us, we hand you over to your fleshly desires. That's a very dangerous place to be, by the way. And yet as a church, there are times when you say, go. Go live that life and see where it gets you. And when you're ready to come back, you can come back and repent. See, if this man was, truly is a Christian, God will sustain and persevere his faith to the end. That's chapter 1, verse 2. God will sustain you. Even in the midst of indulging in your fleshly desires to the nth degree, if you are a child of God, he will bring you back. And he will persevere you. But if he is not a believer, such an action would hopefully drive him then to repentance and salvation. See the waywardness of your way. Put your faith in Christ. Now our modern sensibilities might be causing us some discomfort at Paul's words here, but there is a reason for such an action. And that's the church's purity. We've talked about this in the past. Purity here is not sinless perfection, but faithfulness. The more faithful a church is to the commands and desires and the will of God, the more pure the church. The more faithful the church, the more pure the church. But the other side of the coin is also true. The less faithful a church is to God, the less pure is the church. 
The Corinthians were boasting about their impurity. They were holding high their acceptance of sexual immorality in the church. Now, maybe the church would say, well, it's just one guy. It's not like sexual immorality is rampant throughout the the whole church. But Paul anticipates this response, which is why I love Paul, because he's always thinking like, yeah, I I know you're going to give me this excuse, so let me address it. So he starts to talk about leaven or yeast. Yeast is the ingredient which makes bread fluffy and soft. You want hard, dense, not very soft bread, then don't put any yeast in it. When the yeast or the leaven is kneaded into the bread, it affects the entire lump of dough. It doesn't just affect one little corner. It goes throughout the entire lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's been a saying in the church for years. Well, it's because Paul said it in verse 6. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sexual immorality is like that yeast. Once it enters the church, unless it's dealt with immediately, it will affect the purity of the whole church. The church, he says, really is unleavened bread. It is pure and holy to God. And so the church should strive to remain pure, to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. Because like like the Passover lamb, if you remember the story when Israel is in Egypt and the angel of the Lord comes and threatens to kill the firstborn of every house and they had to slaughter a lamb and put the blood on on the doorposts and on the lintel and and if, if, the, if the angel saw the blood, it passed over that house and no one died in that house. But if there was no blood on the wall, the angel killed the firstborn in that house. That is what he's speaking of. Jesus was the sacrificed lamb upon the cross to die in our place, to die in the place for the Corinthians, for their sinful rebellion against God. He is their Passover lamb. And so the church should celebrate the festival, celebrate the Passover. That's what we're doing this morning with communion. They should live their lives, not with the old leaven, not in the way that they live their old lives of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of purity and faithfulness. In other words, they are not to live as if they did when they were pre-conversion, pre-Christ, the way they lived before Christ saved them. They are to strive to live pure lives of faithfulness to God because that is what He calls them to after He saves them. Another way to see this is through Paul's words in fifteen, chapter 15, verse 33. He says, bad company ruins good morals unfaithfulness in the church, bad company in the church always affects the faithfulness of that church and it never affects it in a good way. And so, purge the evil person from among you. Cleanse the church and remove the sexually immoral person from your fellowship. That's Paul's call to the Corinthians. He doesn't, there's no PC language in that, right? There's no softness in that. The church is being infected by unfaithfulness. 
Find the unrepentant person and purge them from the church. Paul makes it clear, though, that he is not speaking of the sexually immoral of the world, those who do not believe and trust in Christ for their salvation. If that were true, if they were to avoid all the sexually immoral of the world, then the church would have to go completely, completely remove itself from this world, which would go against the great commission of going into the world and making disciples of every nation. So Paul's making a clear distinction. I'm not talking about unbelievers here, guys. You have an unbeliever come into the church and they're sexually immoral? Well, they're not faithful to Christ. They don't know Christ. They're not saved by His grace. They haven't been changed. Welcome them. Love them. Guide them. Teach them. Point them to the gospel and see if Christ saves them. That is not who he's speaking of. The church is called to be in this world, but not be of this world. So Paul is calling it the of the world part of that. The Corinthians are called to live their everyday lives, walking and eating and working among the unbelievers in their city. He says, don't change that. Continue doing that. What I'm concerned with, he says, is the sexually immoral person who proclaims that Jesus is their master. And yet they reject their master's commands. He says, do not associate with these people, not even to have coffee or a meal with them. You cut off complete relationship with them. They are to disconnect their lives from anyone who proclaims to be a Christian but is guilty of unrepentant sin. But who made the church judge? Paul says, God made the church judge. He says in verse 12 and 13, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those on the outside. You don't need to worry about those on the outside. You got to worry about those on the inside. Yes, the church is to check the log in their own eye before they judge the speck in their brother's eye. All too often that passage is misused to say, well, then you shouldn't judge at all. That is not what it says. It says, check the log in your eye before you check the speck in your brother's eye. It is not a command not to judge, but to judge with wisdom and humility. To realize, even within the church, we all have sin that we have to deal with. Let me help you deal with yours. Because this is what I see. And if I'm not seeing sin in my own life, then when we're done, then you can come and you can talk to me with wisdom and humility and love and grace. Judge those within the church with wisdom and humility. The purity and the faithfulness of the church in court demands that they judge their own. Again, not to demean or to shame, but to teach and to sanctify, to point them to Christ and to safeguard the purity and the faithfulness of the church into the future. God takes the purity of his church seriously. So we should probably do the same. If God is serious about this, then we need to be serious about this. When we call out a brother or sister in Christ in sin, 
we need to make sure that we are doing it out of faithfulness to God, out of a desire to maintain the faithfulness and the purity of the church, out of a desire for that brother or sister to repent from their sin and increase their own faithfulness to God. See how it's very selfless? It's not about me being comfortable. It's about the purity of the church. It's about faithfulness to our master and our Lord. To ignore sins such as sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, and drunkenness. That's just what Paul lists here. There's, read his other letters. There's a lot more to add to that list. To ignore those sins will have a negative effect on the church. To ignore sin for the sake of feelings or to avoid uncomfortable conversation is to infect the church with faithlessness. I, I get it. I'm a pastor. I've had some really uncomfortable conversations, and I've avoided uncomfortable conversations. That's not right. Yes, as a pastor, but it's not right as a Christian. Brothers or sisters within the church, to be held accountable, to ignore those sins, is not a good thing for the church. This is bigger than you and this is bigger than me. A church that fails to uphold God's standard of purity and faithfulness is a church that will eventually cease to exist for the kingdom of God. Its doors may still be open and they may have people inside, but they are no longer God's church. You don't have to go far on the internet to find them. They're everywhere in the United States. But there are a lot of faithful churches too. Those who are unfaithful, those who allow unfaithfulness and impurity to infect the whole lump, they live for themselves. They live for their pleasure. They live for their own desires. They live for their own will. In other words, they are their own God. They are their own master, and their master will fail them. But may Elm Creek never go down that road. There's a section in our Constitution as a church which follows Scripture to guide us through discipline of church members to deal with this kind of situation. I know of churches that have very similar guidelines in their Constitution, but rarely, if ever, use them for a lot of reasons. When I first interviewed with Elm Creek's search team for the position of pastor almost nine years ago, can you believe that? Probably feels a lot longer for a lot of you, huh? <laughs> when I first interviewed with the search team, I asked for a specific situation in the past where the leadership of the church followed through on the discipline of a church member. There was a long silence. They all looked at Albert, and Albert proceeded to say, well, yes, let me tell you of a situation. To their credit, to their credit and to my amazement, <laughs> Elm Creek, in its history, has done and will do and is, maybe I shouldn't say is because it sounds like something's going on right now. <laughs> Church discipline is a part of the way we do things. It's rare. But it happens. And if you've ever been a part of a church discipline meeting, no one there like, 
oh, I'm so excited for this. This is so much fun because it's painful. It hurts. Relationships can be broken because of it. can be severed. I have friends who I no longer have conversations with because of church discipline. And Albert won't tell you details, rightfully so. But every time I bring it up, tears come to his eyes because of the pain that's involved in it. But he would never do anything different. We would never do anything different. Why? Because the purity and the faithfulness of the church to our God is more important than my feelings or relationships. I'm not saying relationships aren't important. I'm not saying people aren't important. Don't hear that. But the faithfulness of the church is more important than making you feel comfortable and making me feel comfortable. Church discipline is not done to force moralism. To be, in other words, to be a good person so that God is going to save you. You you need to act like a Christian before you become a Christian. That is unbiblical and it is nowhere found in Scripture. You cannot act like a Christian until you become a Christian. You can't become a Christian until God saves you. When God saves you, then you finally start acting like a Christian. But now you're being held accountable to continue to live that life of obedience. Our desire at Elm Creek is to maintain the purity and the faithfulness of the church. But we also desire to maintain the purity and the faithfulness of individuals. We understand that any change of heart and any change of life can only be done through the power of Christ. I could preach the most awesome, unbelievably world-shaking message and it could do nothing to the hearts of people if God does not intervene, if Christ does not intervene. That being said, I don't have to speak things perfectly and suddenly God's going to move and save a soul, not because of me, but because of him using my fallible words or your fallible words. Any change of heart is done through the power of Christ, but that does not excuse me from warning and teaching those who are being unfaithful to our master. The end desire is repentance, not control. The end desire is to maintain the purity of the church, not to make everyone like us. And so, God, not Paul, commands, purge the evil person from among you. Purge them from the midst of the church. That is not an easy command. It doesn't give us ooey-gooey feelings, but it is vital to the growth of, and the health and the faithfulness of the church. And even in that statement, purge the evil person among you, there is a process before you get to that point. But it may come to that point. And as his church, we must follow through. Now, there are hints in 2 Corinthians that possibly this man was confronted and he repented of that sin. And if that's true, praise God, right? 
and he was welcomed into the church again. Nothing was held against him. It wasn't brought up. That, that's, we want restoration of the unrepentant heart. But until that happens, sometimes you have to purge the evil person from among you to keep the purity of the, of the church. You see, the church was bought with a price. Christ willingly went to the cross to pay the price of death that we all owed. This is, how do you say it? Is, his church is so valuable, he gave his life for it. And so we should protect the church. Does that make sense? He saw us as so valuable, not in ourselves, but in Him, that He was willing to die for us. I think we can be uncomfortable for Him. Easier said than done, I know. I know. But as we go to the table here in a few minutes, then my, my challenge to myself, my challenge to us as a church, to you individually, is to use this time to examine your own hearts. How are we as a church fighting and actively working to be more and more faithful to the commands, desires, and the will of our God? How are we doing individually? Are we putting things in place? Do we recognize unfaithfulness in our own heart? Do we put things in place to to guide us, who have people in our lives who are going to speak truth to us even if we don't want to hear it so that we can continue to be more and more faithful. Again, not to earn God's favor. He already loves us. He already died for us. We are valuable to Him because of His Son, Jesus Christ. And yet our love for Him is so great that we desire to strive every moment of our life to be obedient to Him and to repent and to confess our sins. When we realize, man, we've, we've messed up. Thanks be to God for your grace, but Father, strengthen me. And so how are you striving to increase your faithfulness to God? So during this time, here, here's some, a few, few things I want to give you before we get there. Think these things. First of all, first and foremost, praise God for His Son. Praise God for His sacrifice. Praise God that He died a horrible death so that we would not have to. And He willingly did it. It is not divine child abuse. It is love that sent Him to the cross. So praise God for Jesus Christ and praise God for through His Son making us a son or daughter of His. And then... Search your own heart. Confess and repent of any unfaithfulness. And then worship God for His grace and forgiving us of all of our sins and not holding them against us. And then ask Him to move in our hearts, to move in our lives so that we would be more faithful to Him for His glory and for His praise and honor. So when you are ready, Start a line in the back, grab a cup, grab a piece of bread, 
come and sit down at your seat. And then as a family of God together, you don't have to be a member of Elm Creek. We just ask that you are a believer, that you are a Christian, that you have experienced salvation through Christ, that you know God in that way. You are welcome to join us at the table. Remember that God will hold you accountable for that. Come to your seat, and then together as a family, we will take the cup and we will take the bread and we will worship our Savior, Jesus Christ. So whenever you're ready, come.